Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Protect your business from sexual harassment lawsuits, best practices. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy with Assure. I'll tell you what, this is a topic that maybe if you're watching today, it, it doesn't matter because you're, you're here. I think this topic might scare some folks thinking, well, you know, I'm not a sexual harasser. That topic doesn't apply to me. I don't really need to understand this. And if you are someone who has sexually harassed your employees, uh, you need this, this one hour and a two by four upside the head uh, uh, for sure. But I just want to be clear, this this conversation is for those people who think that they don't have an issue because that's where really all the risk comes. That There are not, a, in my opinion, as an entrepreneur, there, there's not a bunch of small business owners running around thinking, oh boy, I'm doing this and I'm getting away with it. The, the, the places people get in trouble is the, it's the joke. It's the innuendo that they think is totally fine or it's something that's happening under their watch that they're unaware of, but they should be aware of. So that that's really where we want to go with this conversation today, because I think most business owners have way more exposure here than they realize they do. So have a, a great guest. If you watch the show regularly, you know, Brian, um, I guess today is Brian Schenker, New York based attorney with Jackson Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience in defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. Brian regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Brian, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Mike. All right, so this might sound, sound stupid, simple, and obvious, but I, uh, I think uh, where we start the show a lot of times, let's, let's start with just a legal definition. Give me the lo- good lawyerly version of what is a legal definition of ser- sexual harassment. Right. So, yeah, perfect place to start. And look, where this is going to come from is, you know, we have a number of federal uh, anti-discrimination laws that all deal with, you know, types of harassment. Uh, certainly, Title VII is the one that deals with you know, sexual harassment. Uh, and so when we talk about you know, what sexual harassment is, you know, the definition, right, it's got a lot to unpack, but it's basically unwelcome sexual advances you know, or requests for sexual favors or other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. Uh, and, you know, when submission to that is either made explicitly or implicitly a term or condition of employment, or the conduct has the general effect of unreasonably interfering, you know, with work performance or creating a uh, intimidating or offensive uh, work environment. Uh, and so 
these you know, sexual harassment claims are generally broken down into two types. There's quid pro quo and there's hostile work environment. Um, and so it's important to understand the differences because, you know, one is uh, a little more simple than the other, right? So quid pro quo involves, typically it's gonna be someone in management uh, harassing someone, you know, uh, uh, someone who's not in management. And they're basically gonna condition an aspect of employment on, a, on the employee's submission to sexual advances. So, you know, the, you know, a manager saying, hey, you know, I'll put you up for a promotion if you have sex with me, right? That would be quid pro quo unlawful sexual harassment. Yeah. Uh, the other type of sexual harassment is, you know, also, you know, quite common. And we, we see probably more allegations of this type, which is hostile work environment, which, again, we'll talk about unwelcome sexual uh, conduct that's sexual in nature. Again, it's going to be severe or pervasive typically means it's not happening just one time. It's typically not an isolated incident. Uh, and this unreasonably interferes uh, with the person's uh, work. And so, you know, there, there, as I said before, there's lots of things to break down there. You know, we'll, we'll do that throughout this, uh, you know, the show today. Uh, but, you know, a couple key things uh, to discuss in that definition. So, you heard me say unwelcome a couple times. Uh, and so I think this uh, kind of flows, Mike, from what you discussed at the beginning, which is you know, many people in management might not even have the idea that they're you know, sexually harassing someone, right? In their mind, it's just regular you know, office banter and, and they don't have any intent uh, to you know, harass a person. Well, the thing is that for sexual harassment, intent is not really relevant, right? The question isn't about whether the the alleged harasser uh, intended to harass someone else. It's how the uh, individual received it, right? It's about you know the impact of that behavior. So again, when we talk about unwelcome behavior, it's it's unwelcome when the complaining party says it's unwelcome, uh, right? So you know there's uh, a lot to unpack here, but. You know that is kind of the general setup of these two types of uh, you know hostile of these harassment claims. Uh, you know that we see. So I just want to summarize. So two buckets of sexual harassment. One is the the most egregious offense, the thing that we all probably want to you know smack somebody upside the head for. This is the quid pro quo. This is a uh, you do this for me, I'll do that for you, right? And fill in the blank with whatever com comes to mind, right? I think that's pretty obviously wrong. Uh, the, the second bucket is the hostile, uh, hostile work environment. Let me ask this. Are there areas in where you've seen where it makes sense why it would have to be an owner or a supervisor, a manager, some, something that to, to be in a position to offer a quid pro quo, right? Um, a, peer, a peer coworker couldn't advance, yeah. offer advancement. Are there areas where it's not so obvious that it's a, hey, you do the explicit, you do this for me, I'll do that for you, but it's implied, like only the, only the people who dress this kind of a way advance in this company. And in, yeah. in maybe it falls under quid pro quo, maybe that falls under hostile work environment. Where, where might that line be drawn? Or, or does it matter because it's still unwelcomed? 
Right. So, right. So I think in either case, right, it's certainly unwelcome. But yeah, I think what you're getting at would be more of an implied type of quid pro quo instead of that explicit one, which, you know, we can all identify as, you know, someone conditioning a position or advancement on sexual acts. You know, that's obviously quite wrong. Uh, But right. When it's implied, you know, so, you know, some examples of that are, you know, where, right, where, you know, everything's not black and white at companies, right? Maybe it's a situation where, like you said, you know, people who wear, you know, provocative clothing are getting, uh, you know, raises or promotions, while others, you know, who don't do that aren't. And it might not be, you know, explicitly stated, but, you know, there can be a course of conduct that would surely show these things. So, yeah, even if that, you know, quid pro quo and conditioning, of certain things isn't, you know, you know, uh, stated or written anywhere, right? It's just kind of a practice. Yeah, those, those are actionable too. Uh, and, and just to be clear, you know, so quid pro quo, right? The conditioning on, you know, this for that, th- that always needs to involve management, right? Quite clearly, because it's a management employee yeah. who would have the authority to, yeah. you know, offer those things. But, you know, our hostile work environment category, right? You know, where someone is, you know, making it a sexually charged environment that's, you know, inappropriate, right? That can come from a coworker, right? That doesn't have to be uh, created by a manager in order for a hostile work environment to be actionable. So I, I kind of wanted to go to, and I think this is, this is perhaps an undefinable uh, to, to define all the things that don't qualify as sexual harassment, but you know, just examples come to mind. Maybe if I'm a, maybe I own a bar and a restaurant in uh, in near a, a resort area near a beach where um, I'm I believe right or wrong that part of my business is to exude this brand of hot sexy beach vacation and therefore I want my staff to mirror that and so there's no hey i don't expect any sexual relationship with an employee but you do need to dress in this provocative manner as part of the uniform where 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 do those lines start and stop right so you know those things in that regard that are you know business related and you know serve a business purpose right those can be you know uh you know pass muster uh but right you know in, in that situation, you know, I think the you know, hostile work environment might come in if, right, you have a supervisor who start, or, or other employees start commenting on, you know, the attractiveness or the go. bodies of other employees. Or, yeah. you know, you have <clears throat> a manager, you know, telling, you know, some employees to, you know, dress, you know, differently or, you know, than others, right? When, you know, there's something that's, you know, being done there that's, involves sex or sexual discussion or, yeah. you know, um, you know, the body, things like that. And it doesn't serve a business purpose. Right. So, you know, oftentimes we might think that, you know, hey, you know, a common thing I hear from a client is, you know, look, the guys will be guys. Right. Um, and you know, that's that's no defense to, uh, <laughs> to a hostile work environment claim. Uh, but Look, I, I do recognize that, uh, you know, in certain workplaces, there are cultures that have uh, developed over time that are not consistent with what we're saying today, are not consistent, you know, or compliant with the law. 
but that right employers say, well, you know, everyone's doing it type of thing. Uh, but the problem for employers is all it takes is one of those employees to not be comfortable with what's being said. One employee to be offended by, you know, that, um, you know, quote unquote guy talk or, or what have you, you know, so, uh, you know, you might think, Hey, you know, everyone's okay with it, but there could be that one person who's not. And then you've got a hostile work environment situation on your hands. So, um, Brian, is there anything important we should be thinking about hostile work environment, like harassment in and of itself is a broader term than the descriptor sexual harassment. Are there different categories of law here that we should be thinking about? Because maybe, uh, uh, answer that first, I guess. Maybe I'll have a follow-up. That's a great question, right? And it's almost taking a step back, right? Because, yes, harassment can take various forms. So, you know, today we're talking about sexual harassment, and that's sex having to do with, harassment, rather, having to deal with sex or the sexual characteristic, right? But. Uh, you know, discriminations, you know, can be directed at other protected cat- uh, characteristics. So, you know, harassment can be based on race, uh, you know, or disability, right? It, it can include, uh, you know, whenever there's an expression of, say, you know, contempt uh, for a group or, you know, there's, you know, the, the conduct is making someone feel humiliated or discomfort because of a protected characteristic, whatever it might be. Right. So, that, so to be clear, we're, we're talking about harassment that is truly sexual in nature, not gender. So the, the, w- today we're not talking about, um, oh, he only promotes uh, men to the C-suite or uh, they'll only hire women for this role. We're not talking about gender. We're talking about truly s- harassment of the sexual nature, right? Right, right. And so it's generally going to you know, involve... Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? There, there's so many different things that, you know, uh, harassment can include, right? It can be, you know, range from comments to physical touching, uh, you know, uh, staring, you know, you know, at people can be inappropriate in, you know, certain circumstances. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot about a hostile work environment situation is the context and the history, right? Um, you can imagine, right, someone who, you know, uh, an employee who makes a, you know, off-color joke for the first time, and there's never been a history of that type of discussion, right? That might be inappropriate, might be, you know, require some discipline, but it might not, it probably isn't creating a hostile work environment because it's so limited, right? These things, these hostile work environment, again, unless it's particularly egregious, Generally, it's stuff that's ongoing, and that's and that's really the point that this employee has to show up to work every day to endure this not you know this this conduct that's unrelated to their work, but now makes their work environment quite bad to deal with, right? So that's what we're dealing with. But you know, one thing that employers should really note, though, and you know, this is a common misconception, is that the only thing that uh, you know the only place harassment can occur is at the office, right? At work. And that's all we're, we're going to be concerned about what happens, you know, within the four walls of the office. Um, you know, unfortunately harassment can occur and does occur in many other places and employers will have to deal with it. Right. So harassment can take place at an offsite event, like a holiday party. 
It can take place outside of work hours through, you know, calls or text or um, social media. Uh, but any behavior, whether it's during work hours or after work hours, that impacts the work environment for employees is rightly going to be the concern of management. Um, can, can we can we go down a couple of those paths? Because I'm curious. Let, let, let's let's go first maybe to the happens outside of work. So maybe maybe you think you're doing a good job and you're in your and you're holding a high standard to your culture and you don't tolerate uh, you know sexually oriented jokes, teasing, poking fun, uh, touching, etc. You do you do the basic things right, but you believe people's private time is their private time. Where are, where are areas that employers get in trouble? in the blurring perhaps, especially maybe in a social media world um, with sexual harassment that happens outside the workplace. Yeah. So I've seen this many times, Mike, and uh, you know, I, I, I certainly some employers really, you know, believe that if it didn't happen at work, it, it's not their concern. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's number one. That's the first misconception that, you know, employers should, you know, get over, right? Because, Again, you could have a an employee sending you know uh, sexually explicit you know photographs or text messages to another employee, and it doesn't matter if that happened at 10 a.m. when they were in the office or 10 p.m. when they weren't, because that is going to impact that that employee in the workplace, right? So, do, do you have real life a, examples you know, that you can share of this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, this often can come up with respect to, you know, relationships that may or may not be consensual, right? So, um, you know, I've seen various versions of this scenario play out where, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a manager because we're not talking about, about quid pro quo, but we have two employees, they share contact information. And then, you know, one of them immediately starts uh, texting them, asking them out, you know, repeatedly, uh, you know, trying to go on a date. And then look, maybe they go out outside of work. Um, and it's, you know, it's awkward. Maybe, you know, the person says, I don't want to, you know, do this again. And so, again, you can see how those outside activities, you know, might have an impact on how someone is then being, you know, uh, experiencing the workplace where, you know, another employee is constantly asking them out, right? That, that's not necessarily appropriate, right? And asking another employee out on a date by itself isn't necessarily bad, but repeatedly doing it, that becomes, you know, an issue. Um, you know, I, you know, other things I've can, seen. Can, can, we, can we stick on that one for a second? So, so is it, I'm assuming it's not illegal for coworkers to go on a date. It's not even illegal for uh, someone to ask someone out who doesn't want to go out. Right. Where, where does it turn into harassment in the eyes of the law? And since it's not maybe happening at work, what is the employer's responsibility? Because th th there's no way they can know everything that's going on in the personal lives of all their employees. So it's reasonable for them to think, okay, didn't happen at work. What do you want me to do about it? Where where does that where does that line cross 
where the employer should know about it and therefore is now responsible? Right. No, excellent question, because I absolutely agree, right? Employers are not here to legislate the private lives or, you know, private relationships of employees. Uh, but I, I think there are two keys, right? One is once the employer has notice of an issue, okay. right? Now, you know, if the employer learns that, you know, hey, you know, last night there was a, you know, uh, someone made, you know, one of the employees, you know, inappropriately touched another employee at a, you know, happy hour. And that employee has now come in and complained about it because she now doesn't want to face this other employee who, you know, touched her. Right. So you can see how something outside becomes a workplace issue, but right. Typically it's going to be a complaint, right? We're not out there listening and looking to see what happens in the private lives of our employers, but it's more to understand that, if an employee comes in with a complaint, uh, you know, about harassment and part of it stems from conduct that's, you know, off premises or off hours, you know, that should not be, uh, you know, a line of demarcation where HR or the employer says, hey, not, not, don't want to hear anymore. We're not dealing with it. You know, it no. can still potentially be something. And, no. and look, Mike, like you said, sometimes it could be an outside issue between the employees, you know, that that the company can't deal with or shouldn't deal with. But again, receiving the complaint, you know, conducting, you know, the appropriate investigation into it, right? That's that's what matters, right? We don't want to just say, you know, nope, not looking into this, right? That's the type of, you know, ignoring of employee complaints that often, oftentimes uh, is so, what results in, in litigation over these types of things. So that we're matters. giving clear guidance to people watching today. If it happens outside of work, obviously they're adults. They, they, I mean, you, you can't control their lives. You shouldn't have purview to everything that happens in their lives. The the once you have been notified, however, if you have two coworkers, one complains about the other, even if it didn't happen at work, it's not work related, but they work together, and one reports. Now you are on notice. You. I, I'll dare, dare I say you must take action, but regardless of what you do or don't do as a result, just know in the eyes of the law, a judge is going to look at you and say, well, she told you. I mean, you you, you, you knew, right? And so uh, t t I, I, am, I, am, I, am I hearing you right? Right. That, that that's yeah, the line of the sand? Right. And that should tell, right, when the company gets that information, that should be telling them, all right, you know, this is something we need to look into and gather more information. Uh, let's, let's kind of take the inverse now. So now we're at work. And so I, I think it's safe to say when you are notified, when the employee notifies you that, hey, she's always slapping me on the butt and I don't like it, or hey, he's always saying these jokes and I don't like it, or they made these advances, whether it's at work or uh, outside of work. Once the employer is notified, you're on the hook, period. I think, I think that one's clear enough now. Um, we can talk about what to do about it in a second here. What about the at-work stuff that you don't know about that no one did report to you? Where is the liability? Where is the accountability for an owner in those scenarios? Absolutely. So it's a complicated question and... In fact, one that can vary depending on the law of, of the, uh, the state, um, you know, but 
really, you know, so, so, so you know, under the federal law, right, if, if an employee uh, might have been harassed, but they, you know, don't uh, report it to the company or they don't take advantage of uh, the company's, you know, complaint procedure and its policies, uh, you know, that can provide uh, somewhat of a defense to employers. Uh, I, I want employers to be careful about that because that's not a blanket statement. And I really do see the trend as uh, going the other way in that, you know, employers, you know, will be liable for things, uh, this type of conduct, you know, regardless of whether they have policies in place and regardless of whether the employee took advantage of them, right? For instance, in New York, that's not a defense uh, really anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, look, in the workplace, you know, this, this just speaks to the policies, training and culture that a company should be setting up, right? Because what you're hoping is that someone will identify what's going on as something that's wrong and be reported. So the victim, of course, is the first person who could do that. So, you know, that's why we want to make sure you know, everyone receives a handbook and it has very clear complaint procedures uh, so that that person, you know, is aware of who they can go to. Uh, but even if they're not the one, right, you know, this is where, you know, manager training is so key because, you know, there there's this duty to report for managers, right, where maybe no one complains to them, but they observe something, right? You know, yeah. because again, we're, we're talking about things that aren't limited to happening on one day, right? You know, because Brian, it, it's, are... it's fair to say, right? So I, I keep coming back to this. You were notified or you were not notified. It was at work or was it not uh, not at work? So kind of imagine these, these four quadrants, if you will, right? What, and again, if you're notified, you're on the hook, period. You have to, you have to deal with it. You have to act on it. Uh, whether it was at work or outside of work. If it's at work, whether they know and they don't notify you, you're still right. responsible for creating an environment that is sexual harassment free is perhaps the right way to say that, right? I don't want to say it's necessarily even a warm, welcoming. You could intentionally want a super... Uh, competitive, uh, uh, almost aggressive culture. You can create, try to create whatever culture you want, but you are legally responsible for creating a sexual harassment free culture, period. And so where, where do you see cases where maybe, maybe someone's unintentionally or maybe even willfully turning a blind eye in allowing this, a sexual, a sexual harassment culture to exist and they find themselves in trouble because they weren't, it's not just that they, because they never heard a complaint, but they, it was their lack of proactivity in seeking out these kinds of behaviors. Coach us through this. Yeah. So there, there are lots of, uh, you know, examples I could think of. I mean, you know, look, oftentimes there's something that the company knows with respect to the harassment and that they don't do. Right. So, um, you know, there's, there's a recent case at a, you know, at a hospitality venue, right. Where, uh, it wasn't a coworker or a manager. It was a customer, uh, put his hands down the shirt of, uh, one of the female, uh, you know, wait, uh, servers, the, you know, that was observed by a supervisor 
And immediately the company responded to it, right? They, the customer was, was banned, right? The, that manager and the company banned them. But then several weeks later, right, they let the customer back in. And not to mention that, you know, the customer's friends and family came in and ridiculed and mocked this, uh, this server. Um, and so again, right, it, it's not necessary that the company needed to know all that, though they did, they were, they were aware of it. And, you know, there uh, were eventually, you know, complaints, but, you know, that's the type of stuff where what is, you know, once there's some level of notice, you know, what is the company going to do? Um, and, you know, what are the steps it's already done, right? Are you going to, you know, ensure that that person's taken out of the, the situation? Um, but yeah, look, you know, in terms of, you know, the situation where there's nothing observed by any other employees and, you know, the employee who's the victim doesn't report it, you know, unfortunately in that situation, you know, it's not going to come to light until it does, right? Until someone observes it or there's a complaint. So yeah. yeah, as the employer, that's why it's just so important, you know, the things we'll talk about, the preventative type stuff the trainings, right? How to spot sexual harassment, what to do uh, about it when you see it. Um, you know, those are so important to have those mechanisms in place. I mean, you know, many, uh, there's some states now that require annual uh, sexual harassment training. Right. And that in and of itself can be helpful to, you know, employees and so that it's on their mind that this exists and, you know, we need to be cognizant of it. Um, right. Am I, am I thinking about it right? That, and this is classic HR. There's laws on the books, Title VII specifically we're talking about here because uh, we're not talking about um, just general harassment. We're talking sexual harassment. So, so it would largely fall under Title VII. Um, this isn't going to come from a DOL audit. This isn't an EEOC claim. This is probably going to originate as a lawsuit, right? If you didn't act disgruntled employee, uh, 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 is going to go talk to somebody and either seek out an attorney or someone's going to refer them to an attorney. And all of a sudden, boom, you got a lawsuit on your hands. Uh, that's usually how these things manifest. Is that safe to say? Right. <clears throat> and so because it is a lawsuit, you're going to sit in front of a judge and the judge is going to make a decision, certainly based on law, but we're talking human beings involved here and the severity of the judgment, either you're innocent or you're guilty, but if you're guilty, the severity of the penalty is probably going to have a lot to do with how you responded or didn't respond. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it often is. So companies that ignore complaints are typically going to be on the hook for much higher uh, you know, damage awards than those who, you know, may have handled the situation after, you know, once they were aware, right, there could still be exposure there. But right, it's going to be, you know, the two cases where either one, you know, after the company's aware of it, it doesn't do anything, or two, you know, after the company's aware of things, it retaliates, which, you know, as surprising it might be, you know, it, it happens, you know, all, all the time. And in fact, uh, I believe the EOC statistics tell us that um, a huge number, I, I think almost 45% about uh, of sexual harassment claims 
have a retaliation claim, you know, as well. Wow. Uh, so that's telling us that a lot of these employers are at least least alleged to have done something improper even after they were aware of, of what occurred. So, um, and, and, and to be clear for everybody, and I'm making an assumption, you correct me if I'm wrong. Retaliation doesn't mean one of your employees came to you and said, hey, they're telling these inappropriate jokes. I don't like it. Uh, and the employer says, well, you got to toughen up. This is just the real world. I'm docking your pay. It's not that blatant, but it might look like, oh, you don't get scheduled quite as much as you used to, right? The the person telling the dirty jokes gets there 40 hours a week. Maybe you only get 28 hours next week. <clears throat> and it's, right. it, 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 it's the retaliation, whether it's, and it could in fact actually be a complete coincidence, will give benefit of the doubt. But if the, if the person who raises the issue and complains perceives that some course of action, whether it's available schedules or which which crew I'm working on, which clients I get, I get, they get the good clients, I get the bad clients, they work the good hours, I work the bad hours, whatever that may be, if they connect those dots, boy, you're in a lot more trouble here, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times the only thing that connects the dots is the timing of things, right? And that is sufficient uh, to prove one of these claims, right, a retaliation claim. Uh, you know, there's a there's a recent case with a uh, woman in her 40s who is a uh, executive and you know, she was subject to a pretty bad hostile work environment. Right. You know, uh, people openly watching pornography uh, mm. in the office, explicit comments and jokes. She reported the, the you know, the conduct and, you know, company executives did nothing. Uh, but then after that, she starts being removed from relevant work emails. Uh, she was ignored at meetings, right? These are more subtle ways of retaliating. Uh, you know, she was told by her, her boss, you know, that her salary was too high. Uh, you know, later there was more blatant uh, retaliation when uh, she was offered a promotion and it was withdrawn right after she uh, filed a complaint. Uh, you know, those are much more rare, right? The blatant forms, but right, you know, even these smaller things that are designed to make someone's life a little more difficult in the workplace, they can be, you know, constitute retaliation. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it, retaliation is one of those things, Mike, that you know, we often think is it, so basic, right? It almost needs no discussion, right? Just don't do anything bad to these to someone, you know, once they yeah. complain. But uh, it, it, it's it's worth repeating, you know, and it, that you know when you have an employee who makes a complaint, right? That's considered protected activity. Uh, then number, that doesn't mean, you know, you uh, treat them with kid gloves and you, you can't do anything with that employee if there are issues, but you need to understand that any employment action you take, whether it's, you know, discipline, uh, termination, or even those, you know, more subtle uh, types of terms and conditions, those are going to be scrutinized based on the timing, right? And so, you know, if if you are going to discipline or take really any action against an employee once they've made a protected, you know, sexual harassment or other complaint, you know, the idea is you really have to back that up with, you know, documentation to show yes. whatever was done was based on, you know, legitimate business reasons. And maybe the last thing I'll... I'll, I'll... I'll, I'll comment on before we kind of move to best practices and, and prevention here. Um, 
is to really, really think long and hard about timing of changes you make of any kind with an employee who has, who has raised a concern to you. Um, and I, I think it's self-evident. There are bad actors on both sides here. There are, uh, there are employers who allow things to happen that they just shouldn't and they're, they're acting badly. There are also employees who see the boogeyman behind every shadowed corner and perceive things that aren't there. And, and, and so as an employer, you just have to think through every decision. I, I, I know an entrepreneur, uh, she had an employee that complained to her. Uh, it, was, it was a sales rep. The sales rep was demand, making some demands uh, around territory, office, vacation, all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, this employer, in her heart, she thought she she actually wanted to retain this person. She was a l- little bit of a troubled soul, perhaps, but saw potential in this person. In as a, as a reaction to the complaints, changed this person's comp plan in a way that they thought that was actually going to help that per- that rep succeed and make more money. And all of a sudden, it was days later they found themselves at the end of a discrimination suit based on gender, uh, that also included the retaliation claim like you're talking about, because the reason they changed my comp plan was because I complained. And it was like 180 degrees from the owner's intent, but the owner was not seeing around corners the way they should have. Is there anything you'd want to, additional coaching you'd provide along those lines before we talk about some best practices? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, right, in that situation, you know, right, the company could have been much better off if they, they could have done the same thing, but documented, right, why they were taking that, uh, right. making that change, which, you know, then when it resulted maybe in, in an unintended consequence, you know, they could explain, you know, they'd have documentation to show, you know, why it was done. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, we, we want to be careful in dealing with employees once they've engaged in protected activity, but we also have to balance that with you're running a business and the reality that on occasion employees will do make complaints, you know, to, to protect themselves from discipline when they expect expect discipline is coming. Yeah. So I will say uh, that I know in that case, this business owner had excellent documentation and notes and uh, the thing was settled uh, out of court by insurance um, because I think, you know, prosecuting attorney saw that and like, oh, well, you really don't have a case here. Um, exactly. And so it cost a deductible. But if you didn't have good documentation, that could have been, that could easily have been a hundred grand as straight out of your pocket if it, this thing would have gone to court. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, as we'll talk, you know, uh, in a moment, you know, sexual harassment claims are you know, highly emotionally charged and, wow. you know, they, they don't look good, right? It's a very, uh, you know, obviously a very bad look for companies, but, you know, this day and age uh, for companies not to take these issues seriously, you know, again, you know, if you go to court or have to settle or see a jury award, that that will convey the seriousness in which the law looks at these types of complaints. Let's pivot to some best practices uh, in in our last, in our remaining time here. So, uh, what are some of the best things could do? I, I will, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump the shark here, so to speak, um, <laughs> age myself with that reference. Um, 
when we did our our bench HR benchmark survey for small medium sized businesses, looking at the best practices of the fastest growing companies versus shrinking companies, uh, we found that nearly forty percent of companies who didn't grow last year do not have an employee handbook updated within the last twelve months, compared to eight in ten, so eighty percent of fast growing companies do have an employee handbook updated. So forty percent of shrinking companies have an updated handbook. 80% of growing companies have an updated handbook. Clearly, growing companies, and this is a big survey. This is over 2,000 businesses. The, the data doesn't lie. Fast-growing companies understand the importance of, of having talented employees, good employee relationships, and then setting expectations around these things. So what, what is it about an employee handbook that is probably our number one, always going to be our number one recommendation here as a best practice. Yeah, I, I, and I think it's simple, right? Handbooks serve really two big purposes for employers. One, it's it's legal compliance, right? It's going to contain you know your equal employment uh, opportunity policies, your harassment policies, you know other legal disclaimers. So right, we're we're getting all that legal stuff in there. But the second part is legal protection, right? So uh, this comes in a different, a few different forms, right? You know, oftentimes when we talk about discrimination and harassment, it's treating people in similar situations the same way, right? Uh, you know, I'm, the employer should be treating, you know, women differently than men. And so, right, a handbook that has policies, right, it promotes consistency uh, by the employer in, in outcomes and in different situations that it's treating you know, people with different characteristics the same way as the law requires. Uh, you know, it also, the, the proof of receipt, right? So uh, when we see handbook, you know, we, we should probably say, you know, everyone should have a handbook and handbook acknowledgements. Yeah. Because, you know, I've had employers who had a handbook, had no acknowledgements, right? Nothing signed by employees to say they received it. And so if it, was hand, if it wasn't emailed, obviously if we email it, we can see if they got it, but these were not emailed. And so we had an employee who denied ever receiving it and it was impossible to establish they had gotten the handbook with these policies. So, you know, acknowledgements, especially year after year, right? These handbooks should be updated. Every time a new version is distributed, every employee should acknowledge it. It's very important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the handbook for the, for those reasons, right? Far you know, far away, the the biggest thing that a, a company should have, and they follow the handbook, right? It's not a document that just sits on the shelf and collects dust. This is right. what the company refers to when hey, it gets a harassment complaint. Okay, we haven't had one before. Let's look in our handbook. Let's see what our procedure says. All right, we have a you know investigation procedure. That's what we're going to follow, right? So it, it makes it easy for the employer as well, right? You, you have one place now you can look to determine, you know, what you're going to do in various situations. Hey, Brian. So a couple of things I want to go there. So the handbook protects; it helps to protect. I can't say it protects. There's no such thing as blanket protection. But I kept on at the top of the conversation of in the workplace, out of the workplace were notified, wasn't notified, kind of putting these in uh, into the, the, those four categories. It's the when you aren't notified or maybe you kind of sort of observe something, maybe you had a gut feeling. It's these areas where 
you weren't clearly notified by someone that you got a problem, there's a complaint, there's a whatever, there's an event. Um, this is maybe the single biggest thing you can do. If you can demonstrate that you not only have the handbook, you explain the handbook. I do, we deliver this presentation and everybody signed off. Here's their signature. Whether they paid attention, maybe that employee didn't pay attention. Maybe they just signed it and never read it. But it's now they attested to it. And you are you are miles better off than you were otherwise. I'm curious for I want you to speak more on having this handbook, but then you don't follow it. I'm just imagining right. if I'm a judge, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, yeah, your handbook says says this, and the employee signed it. Good on you. But your handbook also says that when you get a complaint, this is your process. Did you follow that process? And if you didn't, your handbook means crap. Right. No, absolutely. And look, those situations where a company does not follow its handbook, those end up in exposure to the company, right? Because it looks just as bad to just, you know, not have a handbook and fly by the seat of your pants as it does to actually have these policies and not follow them. Perhaps it looks worse because now you're willfully not doing what you said you were going to do. Yes. And that's where we often see, you know, the biggest, uh, you know, damage awards uh, in in cases like those where um, the company knew about it, even had policies, and then they they just went the other way. Right. Um, I'm thinking of one right now where, right, there was a, there is a case where you know a company was going to hire a new uh, new manager for a department, and one of the employees in that department reported to HR that, "Hey, I worked with this this manager at a different facility, and they sexually harassed me. And by the way, I filed a complaint about that. And you know the company's you know the company had all the the handbook, everything in place, but they based their response to this uh, aid was you know employee was." That, go find another job if you don't want to deal this person. They're they're now your manager. So the new manager comes in, fires this uh, employee within a week, and you know this was a seven. You know there's a seven figure uh, result here based on the prior conduct and, and the continued conduct. So and the employer's you know blatant you know ignoring of the complaint and not following its handbook. Uh, so yeah, it, seven it, it, figures scares the hell out of anybody. What 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 is the what, what's going through my mind is many of these things to a business to a small business who's trying to everybody wants to grow, everybody wants to build an asset that could be their retirement. But the reality is, most small business owners are actually trying to survive, and a six figure. Hell, maybe a five-figure, but certainly a six-figure, and for sure a seven-figure settlement is existential threat. It, it, it literally puts them out of business, ends their dreams. Without unduly scaring folks, where do you see the spectrum of these things? Um, and obviously, there's different levels of the size of the company and how egregious the offense, and there's a million factors here. But kind of, kind of bucket this, if you will, what, what, what should employers be thinking about is if this goes badly, how much could this actually cost? Yeah. So I guess stepping back, right. What are the things that an employee can recover if, if they are, you know, sexually harassed? So, you know, they can get 
money for emotional distress, right? That's the humiliation, embarrassment, anxiety, um, which that alone can be, you know, range from, you know, the, you know, four, you know, a, a couple thousand in, you know, a very minor case to, you know, six figure in a more serious uh, uh, situation. Uh, there's also uh, punitive damages, which is basically just, you know, the, the jury or judge saying this was egregious conduct and you need to pay for that, you know, egregious and malicious conduct, right? And that's typically going to be the situations where complaints were ignored, right? Punitive damages, uh, you know, can be, you know, seven figures in, the, in those cases, right? That's where, you know, a jury will really hit a company where, you know, it's not just that they did one thing wrong, but once they realized something was wrong, they doubled down on it and did it even, you know, went even worse, right? Those are, yeah. are the situations where you're going to have, you know, sizable punitive uh, damages. But, you know, another thing that often occurs in these cases is injunctive relief, right? So, you know, the EEOC oft, uh, sometimes files these claims on behalf of employees and they will, you know, or if you settle with the EEOC too, they'll impose terms where, they're going to, you know, they're going to be reporting requirements to the EEOC for the next, you know, three, five years during the term of, uh, of this, uh, you know, judgment or, or settlement. And that, you know, there have even been EEOC settlements where uh, the company is required to get a third party to draft policies and implement the anti-discrimination policies because the employer cannot be trusted to do it based on, you know, their past conduct. So, you know, courts will style relief. It's not just going to be money. Uh, they will style relief that kind of meets, uh, you know, the, the conduct and, and addresses, you know, is it an organizational failure, right? That, hey, we don't have policies or they're, they're just ignored. Um, you know, in those situations, that there might be even you know broader uh, relief provided. Maybe, maybe it's a good explanation, and understand why you can't. It's hard to hard to give dollar amounts. Maybe just yeah. generally speaking, I'm, I'm I'm thinking in the very low end. What might, unless you unless your insurance covers this, and their attorneys are picking and doing this work on on your behalf, what would a likely low end cost just to defend, even if you're completely right and you've done everything right, a cost to defend uh, up to, you know, the kind of the max area that you've seen. And, and let's, let's take, stick, call it a 25 employee business to stick kind of in this smaller end of the small business range. Right. So, yeah, so, right. Well, one thing we're not even discussing, right. So we've talked about the damages, but right. The cost to defend. So oh, that yeah. would mean, Right, hiring an attorney and paying your own attorney to fight this, you know, yeah, that can cost. I mean, again, every case is different, but if you're talking about going, you know, from the start of the case up to trial, yeah, we're, we're probably talking, you know, low six figures, uh, yeah. depending on, you know, the, you know, the state you're in and, you, you know, lo the, you lawyers, Brian. I'm telling you, but, you know, and, and that's a problem. And look, that is why. You know, you don't want to get hit with these because this type of claim, and you want to you know prevent these and handle you know any complaints internally and resolve them because these these matters do get expensive when it's not dealt with by the company, right? So that is yeah. why we need these policies so, that say you know who you can complain to, and we promote you know an open door uh, you know uh, culture. 
So, so let's just leave it at this, then we'll go back to best practices because I think I pulled you away from that. So clearly the average small business getting a seven-figure settlement against them uh, is, is crushing, could, be, could, could put them out of business. The company who does everything right from an administrative perspective, they take great notes, they got an employee handbook, they do all the this and all the that, it could still cost them six figures just to defend themselves if they've done nothing wrong, if the other side is lawyered up in a big professional way, right? Mm-hmm. And that might be existential. So therefore, the very, very best thing to do is not have a sexual harassment ever happen in the first place, which then takes us back to the best practices of prevention, right? Yes. So, yeah, yeah, picking up uh, where we left off with, you know, preventative measures. So we talked about the handbook. The one policy I'll discuss that should be inside that harassment discrimination section is a robust complaint procedure. I cannot emphasize this enough. Uh, I know we've discussed this in past, uh, uh, in the past, Mike, that, you know, you always want to have employees come to you as the employer before they consider going outside to an agency or attorney or a union. So we want to make sure that, you know, the policy says they can complain to all sorts of people, right? We don't want one or two uh, places to go because what if they're experiencing harassment from those places, right? We want to ensure they can go, you know, somewhere in the company to be heard and, you know, effectively heard. Uh, so very important to you know, have complaint procedures. But outside of that, outside of the handbook, employee training and manager training is imperative. In some states, it's even required nowadays. Um, but, you know, there are two types of trainings, right? There's one for your rank and file employees, which, again, very important. You know, the, the, you know, the goals here, right, explain what the policies are, give examples of what's acceptable behavior and not acceptable. Uh, but then manager training. Manager training, I'd say, is even more important than the employee training because it's going to go a step farther uh, than the employee training and teaches managers the skills they need to identify, you know, when there's uh, when they're observing harassment to identify a harassment complaint, right? Because oftentimes someone's not coming forward and explicitly saying, hey, I'm, be, uh, I'm you know, subject to sexual harassment. I'd like to make a complaint, right? It's, it's usually something far less clear than that. So managers should be trained on how to identify uh, a complaint. And then, of course, what to do with it next, right? You know, th- this duty to report for managers, absolutely an important training uh, topic because they can't keep complaints off the record. They can't promise confidentiality. They can't tell an employee, hey, you know, let me know when you want me to report this complaint. I'll keep it quiet until then. Th- there's none of that, right? Managers need to understand they're the company. Once they know it, it goes up the chain. Um, it's one of the it's one of the biggest myths that there is such a thing as off the record. There's no the you you might think it. It's like a part of our cultural nomenclature. Hey, this is an off the record. No, it's not because the, the judge is going to say, "Well, they told you." I mean, so you knew, and then you still did nothing. So yeah. remove that from your vocabulary. There's no such thing as off the record. 
Right. And look, right. And the other thing we don't want managers doing is deciding whether this is serious enough to, you know, report up the chain. Right. So managers should report the complaint, even if they think, you know, the complaints about something trivial or, you know, even if, you know, they think it's been resolved. Right. These things should be reported. So, you know, that is really important because as the company, you're charged with the knowledge of managers. Right. And so they really need to understand their role in protecting you know, the company and again, protecting other employees from potential harassment. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. manager training, employee training, both both very important. Uh, and look, you know, we, we've really discussed this already. But of course, you know, once those complaints come in, right, we need to investigate. Uh, I know we, we, we did a deep dive into investigations uh, previously, so uh, I, I know that's out there uh, for anyone to see. But uh, yeah. when, when a company gets a complaint, right, it, we'll just leave it at this, that promptly, promptly, you know, investigate uh, because, you know, as we've seen, you know, that's one part that can really uh, provide a company a defense or at least part of a defense or make the, you know, the situation a lot less serious if they uh, get yeah, into that. I highly encourage you already, Brian and I, you, you and I just did a show recently on this. That's a whole topic in of itself, yeah. but how to, how to properly conduct an investigation. Don't, don't underthink this. It's kind of like the judge that says, okay, you got the handbook, but you didn't follow your own rules. Therefore your handbook is meaningless. Um, you, there's a right way and a wrong way to do an investigation. Yeah. Maybe, maybe wrap it up, uh, uh, for, for best practices. I think it's, uh, involves retaliation and, and, and not doing it. Right. Right. So I, I think, I think we've hit that, but right. The, the last thing is right. Don't, don't retaliate. Um, you know, and again, right. There's, this applies whether the complaint is, you know, we think it's frivolous or a serious complaint, right? That just because someone complains and, you know, the complaint goes uncorroborated, right? And so we don't take any action. That doesn't mean you're going to then be free to retaliate against the person, right? They still engaged in protected activity. Yeah. And so, you know, you can't take action against them because of that complaint. Yeah. Um, so, so again, you know, I, I think just to hammer home, you know, both in this situation and all situations, employment decisions should be backed up with, uh, you know, business related uh, reasoning that is hopefully in writing uh, and that will, you know, help in a retaliation situation and, and many others. Brian, I got, I got maybe one last use case I wanna, I wanna throw out here. Yeah, and I think this is actually common. Um, and if you watch the show regularly, you know that I, I almost I, I'm I'm not naive to think that there are bad actors uh, from employers. But the purpose of this show is to uh, is to advocate for employers, right? In in how do you protect yourself? Uh, that's not to say we we want to give you techniques to get away with wrong stuff. We do not. That's not the intent. But we we do want to give. We generally give business owners, entrepreneurs, employers the benefit of the doubt. Real life conversations, straight talk. Talking to an employer recently, um, and it's about HR. And uh, she she runs a, a business in the beauty industry. Um, she's like, Mike, I know darn well 
that my business isn't super HRE compliant. Um, there's a lot of slapping on the ass. There's a lot of off-color jokes. She said, but that's also one of the things that my employees love. And if I try to clamp down and be too legalistic here, my word's not hers. Um, she's had genuine fear like she's going to, she would she would lose some of her employees. That's what they love about this open, mm -hmm. super fun group. And she knows that it's a little bit maybe playing with fire. And she's mm -hmm. not intentionally trying to create anything that's toxic or over the top. And I don't think there's anything that's egregious that's happening in her business. But I think a lot of business owners kind of do this calculus that's like, yeah, Maybe in a pure HR sense, I shouldn't allow that. But hey, we're real. We're family. We tell jokes. And give your give your business consultant, not lawyer, advice to business owners because this is real world, right? Yeah. I mean, no, and look, it's it's an issue that look, I, I've heard this from uh, from clients as well. And it's a difficult one, right? It's a difficult situation where, you know, like sometimes these come up depending on, you know, what industry it is, uh, or it's just, you know, a company that's been around and this is the culture that's developed. And, you know, look, the, the, the owner will say, hey, you know, it's acceptable. People just do this. Every, everyone's fine. And look, my, my response to that is it's fine until it isn't. Right. You know, you might think right. it's fine, but do you know how each of your employees, feel, you know, is subjectively feeling about that conduct? You know, one of the things uh, with sexual harassment is, you know, the unwelcome nature of it. Right. So what what I'm hearing is, well, this isn't really unwelcome. Right. It may be we understand it's inappropriate, but it's not unwelcome because everyone's you know partaking in it. But, you know, with that unwelcomed aspect, you know, you can change consent, right? So it might be welcome, right? This is fine, but then someone crosses a line and, and now it's no longer wel welcome conduct right. when someone says, you know, that, that wasn't really a funny joke. I, I, I don't like when you say that. Or look, maybe we hire someone new who has, who, you know, has some different protected characteristics or other characteristics than the other employees. And they might, you know, think about uh, what's being said a bit differently. Uh, so again, I think for the reason that an employer can never truly get inside their employees' heads, you know, it, it's not good to tolerate those types of environments because, you know, I've also seen lawsuits filed by an employee who said the environment was so bad and I was compelled to go along with it because right. if I didn't laugh at these jokes, if I didn't, you know, say something, you know, along those lines, then... I thought I would be fired or I would be ostracized. So, you know, I, I endured it, right? I think, so I think you're hit the nail on the head. I think that's the, I mean, there's obviously a bunch of, in a legalistic HR compliance uh, context, a bunch of things wrong with allowing any of those behaviors, the bad jokes, the, the ass padding, the whatever, right? Um, but I think the thing that we miss as employers is, yeah. I remember when I first became a boss and had employees years ago, um, people laugh at your jokes a little more than they used to, right? And they're not trying to suck up to you, but it's just that's just that's just nature, human nature. And if 
you might not be the one telling the bad joke or, or, or the pat on the tush, but you laugh when the other person does, you're sending a signal to everybody else that this is funny. And you might honestly think that everyone, quote, everyone thinks this is funny. Maybe there's laughing because they think the boss thinks this is funny. And maybe they just want to fit in. Maybe it's purely social. They just want to fit in. Maybe it's career. Hey, this is how it is. This is the game you have to play here. There's a whole bunch of reasons why some of your employees might see this as, and you, you're, I'll use your word at the top of the conversation, unwelcomed and of sexual orientation that makes it sexual harassment, even though you yeah. think it's not. I, I think that's a really good use case. I'm going to give you the final word. What, what's your what's your guidance to, to uh, employers, small business owners around sexual harassment? Yeah, I, I think just having a recognition that harassment can and does occur and that you know you need to take steps to ensure it's not occurring in your workplace. Uh, and again, as with a lot of these things, taking steps to create a harassment-free environment at work not only helps compliance-wise, but it creates a better culture. And when you have a better culture, you have employees who want to be there who are going to be better workers. And so, you know, all of this goes to creating, uh, you know, a, a more positive workplace and a, a better company potentially because employees will stay. They're not getting pushed out uh, and they want to be there. So I think, you know, companies who invest in these preventative measures and, and setting this, uh, you know, a compliant workplace, you know, they'll reap the benefits in multiple ways. Yeah, yeah, very good. Brian, this is a super important topic that I think I think people too quickly dismiss as, oh, that's not me. I don't sexually harass people. I think this is a, a I think we did a good job unpacking some of the ways that we, uh, as employers and entrepreneurs, we probably have more exposure than, than we thought we did uh, in, in start getting a good uh, employee handbook, living out your employee handbook, take serious every complaint, conduct investigations, and do not retaliate. I think that's all really, really sound advice to help get ahead of these things, and you never have to face the, the, the claim in the first place. Brian, thanks for your time today. Thank you. And to everybody else, until next week, we'll talk to you then. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws. Visit AssureSoftware.com.